0: You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin.
1: My guest on today's episode of Talking Taiwan is Dr. Jerome Keating, who's been in Taiwan for over 30 years. Initially, he came to Taiwan to work on the MRT. He has written several books about Taiwan, and we have him here today to talk about his latest book, Taiwan, the Struggle Gains Focus. This is part one of our two-part interview. Welcome, Jerome.
0: Thank you, Felicia. It's good to be talking with you.
1: Wonderful. So, um, first of all, can we start with what motivated you to write this book?
0: Okay, well, I think when you look at several of my past books, Taiwan, the Search for Identity, that ended in 2008, and Taiwan, the Struggle for Democracy, ended in 2006. and Also, Island in the Stream ended in 2008. They all ended just when Ma was being elected. And I felt the need to continue those, but I decided to continue the three in one book because now democracy had been achieved and it was gaining focus. So this book covers from... 2008, the Ma years, and the first four years of Tsai. So this is the basic motivation to continue that story. But since each book there would not be enough, I felt, you know, to have it by itself. I combined them and had all three in one.
1: Um. And who did you write this book for?
0: Well, I write the book primarily. For the English-speaking world, the and that's because I have found a very, what would I call it, in a way, almost among many people in the English-speaking world, a glaring ignorance of Taiwan's past history, its struggle for democracy, and everything that is going on in Taiwan. Many of the people here know it. And many even Taiwanese and the U.S. know it, but they know it more through the media that is in Taiwan, and they don't. You don't see that much of it in English.
1: Yeah, and I thank you for that. I think you're doing a really huge service to create awareness about Taiwan and Taiwan's situation. I'm wondering, like, why this book now? What is it that you think this book adds to? You have, what, was it four or five previous books about Taiwan?
0: Uh, there were four, yeah, four previous books. The Island in the Stream was probably the most successful in that it ran into four editions and a second printing. Mm-hmm. But it, there was a need that we had had the Eight Years of Ma. And now we had had four years of Tsai and last January was a very crucial election you know the Tsai was running against Han Guo Yu Han Guo Yu was bringing back the old idea let's go to China let's all be friends let's all make money and there was a need to say that Taiwan's democracy has come a long way and a lot of things have changed and happened. There is a very strong community Taiwanese spirit here, and it had to be expressed, I felt.
1: Right. Um, and I think it's, you know, since you've been in Taiwan for 30 years, you've probably seen a lot of change. Like, could you talk a little bit about what Taiwan was like when you first arrived and compare it to what, how it is now?
0: Okay, right. When I first arrived Taiwan had just gotten out from under martial law that was in 1987 July 87 Chiang ching lifted martial law and he allowed many parties now technically the DPP had already formed itself in violation of the law in 1986 but I arrived in 88, so I was just, I arrived in October 88, and Zhang Jingguo had died, and Li Dengwei had now taken over, but Taiwan was still under, in a way, a semi-martial law atmosphere. The garrison command, which was disbanded in 1992, still walked the streets. And they they patrolled, they they were very visible. They had silver helmets, they usually walked two regular soldiers and one lieutenant in front of them and just walked the streets and uh, letting people know visibly that they were there. So all these vestiges were in Taiwan on the political side on a different side, there were, Taiwan had not yet, of course, we didn't have the MRT, which we were working on in Taipei. And people, the economy was good, but people were not yet buying cars. The There were motor scooters everywhere. And that was a time when they didn't have helmets and motor scooters. You could see a motor scooter going by with a family of five on the motor scooter. It was an interesting time.
1: Right. Thank you so much for painting that picture. And it wasn't actually that long ago. It's amazing to think about how far Taiwan has come. And when did you start writing about Taiwan?
0: Okay, while I was here, I wrote... In the 90s, I wrote mainly about some cultural things, some arts... Some different sports, different things, that, food that were going on. It was only in 2000 that I started writing politically. And that happened as, you know, a different result or reason for getting into that. The So I'd almost divide my writings, you know, between the pre-2000 and the post-2000 period.
1: Mm-hmm. So then what was the first book that you wrote about Taiwan?
0: Well, the first book was Island in the Stream, a quick case study of Taiwan's complex history. And it was co-written with a good friend, uh, Dr. April Lin. We were both teaching at the same university and it had kind of an interesting motivation. Uh, My wife, Monica and I would travel often through Europe and in the U.S. And you would meet people. They would go through the usual, how are you, where are you from, etc. And we'd say Taiwan. And almost inevitably, they would say something like, oh, Taiwan, that's a part of China, isn't it? <laughs> and, <laughs> and that really ticked me off you know and you know you'd have to go into an explanation about it and finally i decided i've got to write something in english that lists goes over the history of taiwan and shows people why it is not a part of china
1: mhm
0: and that's you know the complex history the uh, when you Look at the later editions. You see the many flags that have flown over Taiwan. The other part of the story is that I would be talking about this and uh, going on the bus where I taught up at Yamingshan at Chinese Culture University, mm-hmm. and April Lin taught up there also. And sometimes we'd be sitting next to each other on the bus and talking about things. She was in the history department and she had also wanted to write something about Taiwan in English. Now, April is Taiwanese, a historian, and her specialty was the Japanese era in Taiwan politics. So we talked about this and finally decided, yeah, why don't we, you know, go about writing a book on this and we could combine a lot of sources she could bring in the Japanese source bring in a lot of the Chinese sources I could cover the Western sources and we then set about writing it we would meet regularly go over things and of course I would come with the final production I would write it out and then go over it with her to make sure she had no disagreement on it and that's uh, how Island in the Stream came up. Thank you for
1: sharing that. What is it that intrigues you about Taiwan as a subject matter to write about?
0: Well, there's a lot of things, I guess, about Taiwan, its unique history and probably, you know, the main thing was the second book, it was a struggle for its democracy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you know its history, how it got, through off 38 years of martial law, you know, over 40 years of white terror. Uh, the, the white one-party state that the Kuomintang, the KMT, had developed here. And again, the misunderstanding or lack of knowledge in the west of what was actually happening in taiwan it was you know some of it would be in the papers but the, mainly it was not mainstream media news it was just kind of like back page or third or fourth page stuff so that part i've always been interested in the struggle of a people for democracy to have their own self-expression, to express their own identity. And Taiwan's story is definitely that, and it's a long struggle when you look at it. Uh, and there's other facets that maybe we can get into the uh, of that struggle.
1: Sure, I invite you to go into that.
0: Because uh, I think one was even the you know, the fact that the people had to overcome their different separate factions. When you look at Taiwan's history, I kind of would divide pre-1945, the people, there were four basic groups, or let's go back to 1895 when the Japanese came in, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: and there were four basic groups here, There were two Hoklo groups, which were came from Fujian province, and then there were the Hakka, and then there were the indigenous people. And all these four groups were traditionally competing with each other for land and different things. They also trade and sometimes intermarried, but they often fought with each other and It was only when Japan came in 1895, and I'll make the point that, you know, Japan was the first nation to control the whole island of Taiwan. All the previous colonial past had been small sections on the west coast, but Japan controlled it, and the four groups then began to realize You know, hey, we've got a common enemy. Uh, You know, we we better unite if we're going to survive. Because the Qing had been usually able to play one group against the other when there was a rebellion, Mm -hmm. but the Japanese just took over the whole place. So they didn't need, in a way, one group against the other. Though they did use it sometimes in the past with uh, sympathizers. So that—that's—I'm um, trying to think. How did we wander into that, Felicia? But the,
1: uh, <laughs> uh, we're talking was, about I what? It, what is
0: it? Why I was fascinated with the people struggling to get their democracy, and then of course the irony after World War One or World War Two, when Japan, you know, of which Taiwan was their model colony. Uh, gives up Taiwan in the San Francisco peace treaty but the treaty never says who Japan gives it to and it has been in that limbo ever since yes. even the US you know and I get to this in later writings we are 75 years after the end of World War 1 and the US official position on Taiwan is still, it is undecided The uh, 75 years that's a long, long time so, you know, Taiwan's struggle for democracy they've got it but it is not kind of quotes officially recognized yet in the world it's not in the UN and that goes back to its own history about How the followers of Chiang Kai-shek were kicked out of the UN, but not Taiwan, if you read the UN article.
1: Yeah, can you explain that a little bit further for
0: our listeners? Okay, well, this goes back. There's an interesting, complex part there that in the 1960s, the Italians had pushed resolution that... Taiwan, speaking of Taiwan, but because there was the Republic of China on Taiwan, and of course you had already the People's Republic of China on Mm -hmm. China,
1: right?
0: And the Italians pushed a resolution for having two Chinas in the UN, just like there were two Germany's. There was East and West Germany. There was North and South Korea, and You know, they knew there was this conflict here and the U.S. was behind this and they had the votes to push this through to have two Chinas. Now, in a way, in my mind, Taiwan was actually lucky that they didn't because if they would have pushed two Chinas and, you know, but Chiang Kai-shek is the one who refused it. Of course, Mao refused it also. But Chiang Kai-shek, you know, wanted the whole thing He wasn't going to share it with Mao And maybe he knew he was losing ground to Mao And he didn't want to give them the in- inevitability of taking over But Chiang Kai-shek refused it uh, The U.S. was pushing for it, they had the votes Now, by the time 1971 rolled around this was when Nixon was starting to go to China, etc. Kissinger was pushing China things and the votes, more African nations had come in and they were voting with the, quotes, communist bloc and that's when, you know, the vote was actually made and, of course, before they officially were kicked out Chiang Kai-shek told his people to walk out. That way they could say, you didn't kick us out, we left. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Uh,
0: But uh, the resolution says, you know, the People's Republic of China represents China. And the followers, read it, it says the followers of Chiang Kai-shek do not. And that is where it has stood
1: hmm but you said something earlier correct me if I'm wrong something about that Taiwan was not kicked out of the UN what was that it wasn't Taiwan that lost the seat in the UN or the phrasing they used was something about Taiwan not being in the oh, UN
0: right and the official presence in the UN was the Republic of China which you know was Chiang kai-shek and after the war Chiang kai-shek's group fought the communist group under Mao and eventually in 1949 Mao won and Chiang Kai-shek had to retreat to Taiwan. So that's where you have the divide and then the People's Republic of China was officially formed in 1949 and therefore you had the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China both saying they represented China.
1: So, Taiwan uh, has never had any seat in the UN. There's never been a country under the name Taiwan that's been a member of the UN then.
0: Right. Taiwan had been denied the self-representation choice that so many colonies got after the war. And... That's part of its problem, and that's part of the problem of the San Francisco Peace Treaty. You know, when you look, the San Francisco Peace Treaty was written in 1951 and finally approved in 1952. So we're talking seven years after the end of World War II, which was in 1945. So in this time, you know there was never and there were some voices to have taiwan get its own vote but it never amounted to anything and taiwan as taiwan the people here were never given that choice of self-determination
1: Right, and that's what's so complex about Taiwan's situation. Like In a sense, Taiwan is kind of in a limbo situation. The U.S., for strategic reasons, doesn't want to recognize it. But then you have China saying that if Taiwan declares independence, they have a right to use force to take the island. So the, the Taiwanese are, in a sense, in a rock and a hard place.
0: Yeah, in a way they are. I'm, in one way, they already have de facto independence they already are a de facto country you know, they fit all the criteria of the Montevideo convention
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so they will go along with the status quo it's kind of like okay we've got the de facto thing we do have a certain amount of countries that still officially recognize us as Republic of China. That's another factor we have to get into on the Constitution, etc. But it's kind of like, okay, things are pretty peaceful. You know, should we stir the pot or not? Some are saying, yes, it's time to finally lay it out there and say, you know, look to the rest of the world. We have been independent. We achieved our democracy, etc., give us the official recognition that we deserve and of course the other countries they they want to trade with China they don't want to lose their trade with China so they shy away from this as well.
1: Right and as you um, alluded to one of the problems is that there is a Republic of China framework there because basically when Chiang Kai-shek came over he brought over that framework and so the Constitution that Taiwan is using now is the Republic of China Constitution and in recent years there's been a lot more discussion about uh, reform or amendment like can you talk a little bit about that
0: yeah let's see. Um, you know that the 1947 Constitution which the ROC made in China and two years before they lost to the PRC <laughs> and they brought that constitution with them and therefore we, you know, we have now it has been amended it has been you know things have been changed in it etc but if you go back to that constitution before all amendments in that claimed even Mongolia and kind of interesting the People's Republic of China gave up part of Mongolia at the pressure of the Russians Mm. and now we have you know inner and outer Mongolia. Outer Mongolia is really Mongolia. Inner Mongolia is still part of the PRC Uh, but Taiwan's constitution even though it has had these amendments and said, okay, we don't control that, et cetera, but it's you know, still technically a part of ROC. The, uh, it's a big can of worms, definitely. Uh, I think a lot of students could write many dissertations trying to explain all the nuances that are involved in this.
1: What do you know about any efforts going on to either amend or reform the Constitution right now? Do you know, can you comment on that?
0: Well, there is a lot of push on that. And to my mind, this is one of the challenges that the Tsai government has to handle in her time now. The, you know, President Tsai Ing-wen is in her second term. She's in the first year of her se- four-year term, the second four years. and therefore she doesn't have to worry about re-election or anything. This is time in my mind to start to settle this constitution thing. Uh, that's one of the many things. She's got, of course, a lot of other things on her plate. There's transitional justice. There's a lot of judicial reform, uh, but this thing, a rewriting of the constitution, has to be handled. And here we get back in that game of, you know, China saying, well, even though we don't accept the ROC constitution, you can't rewrite it and then say it's a then have a Taiwan constitution because that goes against our constitution, which says you are a part of us. (laughs) So it's a complex game, but I think the Psi government is able to handle it. They've got the legislative majority. Uh, This is when they should do it. You know, she should have a special task force doing this, working on this.
1: Yeah, that yeah, that was going to be my next question. So we don't. So so far, it sh- there doesn't seem to be a task force or anything official to work on the constitution.
0: I I think there are people. That, there are groups, or you know, people that are assigned to work on this. But how much power? How fast they are going to work? Uh, you know, have they set deadlines? This is an important thing. Like, we've got to get this thing done, say, before 2023 So we can put it to the legislative end You have to set goals and set deadlines When April and I wrote the first book We used to meet every weekend And we set, you know, goals of We'd cover this period, bring in all the resources And that's how we... You know, met the final deadline of getting the thing produced in 2000 when uh, when Lee left office.
1: Yeah, so it's interesting. I wonder what the priority is for her. And but at least now it seems like at this time there's probably a lot more public support for this. But as you mentioned, there's a lot of things that uh, she needs to deal with, like the truth and reconciliation and a lot of the injustices. So it's hard to know what. Uh, ranking these things right. are on her plate yeah
0: and I, I can be joking a little here but she hasn't consulted me yet
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: you know I, I haven't gotten that phone call <laughs> you know what priority should be done to, uh, uh, so in a way she has to follow her own drummer but you know in my mind this is clearly one thing that has to be handled I think and I think getting, you know, it's already been had people working on it, but getting it done by 2023, uh, getting, or even just getting the name change. You know, countries change their names, countries change their flags regularly. Those could be small starts. Oh, they that's very doing, controversial
1: for Taiwan, though.
0: <laughs> yeah. I, but they are do working on things, you know, for the passport. That It's, it's just a Taiwan passport yes. and a little ROC at the bottom. <laughs> yes. But uh, even the flag change would be good. You know, the, there's no reason that we should participate in the Olympics as Chinese Taipei. There's right. no reason, absolutely. That was done back in Chiang Kai-shek's day.
1: Yeah, and also even just literally the flag that represents Taiwan now, what about that flag?
0: Right. No, that that definitely, you know, that's the flag that the Kuomintang brought with it.
1: Yeah, that they, was the like, party the, uh, the, the Kuomintang, Kuomintang, Kuomintang. Kuomintang party flag.
0: Yeah, so you know, definitely they need to change that. They could have have a contest, you know. Have people suggest flags, as well as having a committee work on it. Uh, but you know, changing the flag—if someone gets pissed off that they change their flag—well, damn, it's time to piss them off then. <laughs> they uh, you know, that's that's the reality reality of it. The some people just want to cling to the past, and it is a past that has to be abandoned.
1: Right. Well, at least right now, there seems to be some... There's a competition for the passport covers. Have you seen the submissions for the the Taiwan passport covers?
0: I haven't seen, you know, all the submissions. I've seen one or two. I think that's a good idea. It's a step in the right direction. Uh, and, yeah, the passport cover... You know, the flag is one thing. The flag would be easier because passports and that you've got to go through customs what people countries will recognize etc and that gets a little more official the flag would be a much easier thing to change you know you look in the history of many countries in the U.N. they have changed their flag I mean even the U.S. changes its flag every time it gets a new state puts a new star on there you know. Now there are 50 stars in the U.S., but and here I'm just going to throw this out a little humorously. But if the Taiwan civil government had their way, maybe Taiwan would be the 51st star on the U.S. flag, (laughs) (laughs) and that would uh, make a very interesting controversy.
1: You think that that's what the U.S. wants?
0: (laughs) Uh, The U.S. I don't think the U.S., the U.S. has, as I say, been playing a an unusual, long cat-and-mouse game. You know, I told you, the U.S. position 75 years after the end of World War II is still undecided. You know, come on. <laughs> and the U.S. right now does not have enough able-bodied statesmen to solve this problem and to solve it well for the world situation. They've always been, well, we don't want to, you know, we want to play China against Russia. We don't want to lose all the market, the factories that produce all the cheap stuff that we have in China, the factories in China that produce the cheap stuff that we sell in the U.S., yeah, there's a lot of factors involved here, and so, but the U.S. I have not seen any able-bodied statesman who could solve untie the Gordian knot that they created with the San Francisco peace treaty. Yeah, they haven't met me either.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and it seems like your book, uh, your most recent book, Taiwan, The Struggle Gains Focus, um, is kind of like a commentary on how you see Taiwan's future. Can you talk a little bit about that, what you see for Taiwan moving forward?
0: Uh, I see Taiwan's future as positive. Obviously, it's in a dangerous place, you know, you've got China always threatening to attack, but as I said in, you know, a recent article, there are a lot of things on Taiwan side as well, not only its geographical layout, but its people, the growing sense of the imagined community that is on Taiwan. You know, they are seeing themselves as we are Taiwanese, the... Uh, we may have origins in China, just like the U.S. had a lot of origins in the U.K., but we are Taiwanese. Now, I, I could throw an interesting parallel here. The, um, you know, the, It was in the 1840s that Ralph Waldo Emerson, transcendentalist, living in New England, etc., wrote his famous, you know, essay where he said, we need to have an American literature. You know, we're talking, what, you know, some basically 60 years after the American Revolution, and he's complaining, he says, you know, we still use too much a British voice. We need some good, strong American writers to lay it out there. Hmm. I'm... giving him my own words but that's what he says and in a way so Taiwan situation you know Taiwan right now it's looking back so 1949 you know 19 you know all the last colonial invasion of the KMT the the whole period of the white terror the one-party state Taiwan now has a democracy and there are good Taiwanese writers out there. And like Emerson saying, we need some real good Taiwanese writers who will lay it on the line, say what it is to be Taiwanese, talk about the Taiwan experience, differentiate it from what's on the other side of the Taiwan Strait, and just put it all out there. And there are some doing that, but, you know, they were doing that in Emerson's time as well, but That was the freeing thing, or that was his real thing to say, you know, hey, come on, look, it's it's so long after the revolution, and we still are thinking with that mindset of Europe.
1: All right, so let that be a call to action to any Taiwanese writers there or other people wanting to write about Taiwan. We want to thank you so much for your time um, talking about your recent book, Taiwan, The Struggle Gains for Focus. We're going to have you back on for a second episode to talk a little bit more about your long writing career and uh, what you've been through in that time.
0: Thank you, Felicia. We'll talk to you later.
1: I've been speaking with Dr. Jerome Keating about his latest book, Taiwan, The Struggle Gains Focus, and his views on Taiwan. Tune in next week for part two of my interview with Dr. Keating about his other books, his writing process, what he plans to write next, and meeting with the owners of the New York-based Taiwanese-American restaurant, Winson, who were guests on episode 60 of Talking Taiwan. To learn more about Dr. Keating, his books, and any links related to items mentioned in this episode, visit our website, TalkingTaiwan.com. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host,
0: Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.